Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. So we're drawing kind of to a conclusion here of, of this smaller series um, before we, uh, we turn our attention again toward the Old Testament. That's a little bit the rhythm of our church. We want to, um, we want to be a church that gives equal attention to both the Old and New Testament, understanding that the Bible is one story of God's work uh, to redeem sinners to himself, right? It's this beautiful story of um, adoption made available um, for those who are incapable of working ourselves into right relationship with our creator. Um, And so in doing that, we want to look from an Old Testament and New Testament perspective at this story that is being told. And so um, we're here in John. Uh, we'll be here this morning and next week, and then we'll turn our attention towards the Old Testament. So we invite you to, um, to yeah, come back and to join us um, for that as well. Let's, um, let's pray together before we turn our attention again toward, uh, toward John 9. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for speaking to us. Uh, thank you for sending your spirit to open our hearts to the truth of your word. We ask that you would, even as we sit here this morning, give us a passion for you. Give us a passion for knowing Christ in the word and a desire to see our communities transformed by the power of the gospel. Give us a desire to see this morning our, our hearts and our rhythms and the way in which we see ourselves and those around us and the world um, shaped by your word. Help us this morning to submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus um, and of your word uh, as we seek to know uh, you better there. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Why do we experience sickness, deformities, and death? Why is that a thing, right? Is that a question that you've ever considered? That's probably a question that um, hits a little bit closer, maybe for for some of us um, who have a little bit more experience in these areas. Sickness, disability, and and death are, broadly speaking, of course, as we know, a result of sin. So if you're here this morning and you're going, okay, from a a foundational perspective, why do these things exist in the world? Like, why are they a thing as opposed to everything just being really smooth and really chill and like really laid back? Like, why do we see um, these things and experience these things in, in creation? And from the beginning, we observe that this is not God's design or desire. However, when Adam, our older brother, fell, the world became cursed. And all of these are in some way manifestations of this curse. The world is not as it should be. Because sin has infected it. It's an interesting way to think about that, isn't it? Like think about, about sickness and death and disability and the things that make us um, so sad and discourage us so much and give birth to such question within us to understand that this is a byproduct of this infectious work of sin in the place in which we live, in the bodies in which we live. All of creation is groaning in anticipation of its release from this bondage. At the same time, 
While all suffering is a, is a consequence of life in a fallen world, that does not mean that every ailment is due to a specific sin by an affected individual or someone close to them. There are a couple of biblical uh, 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 examples that would serve to dispel this idea. One would be the book of Job in its entirety. And what do we think about uh, the presence of, of these manifestations in our world? The book of Job strongly discourages the conclusion that the, all that we see and feel is related to a specific sin in our lives. However, as we turn our attention towards John 9, we find that this did not prevent many first century Jews from concluding that the suffering of an individual must be due to his personal sin. We can relate with this, I think, to, to some extent, right? The fact that we, we have illustration and example like the life of Job recorded for us in God's word. While we likely have personal experience, we do tend to fall into this camp in which we connect certain decisions and behaviors with these difficult consequences that so oftentimes follows. Insert John 9. Right, insert John 9 where Jesus again challenges the way that his followers see the world and understand hardship. Insert John 9 in which we observe Jesus challenging the way that we see the world and understand hardship. Big idea. Where are we going this morning? Here it is. Just a few, a few simple words for you to record that will serve to guide our time. God purposes suffering to display his glory. God purposes suffering to display his glory. This is the idea that is being, that is being presented as we engage with this interaction between Jesus and the blind man of John 9 and his disciples. And then this broader crowd of people that begin to gather around. We see through John 9, John challenging his readers to see brokenness and death and disability differently. Understanding that this is only possible when we understand Jesus differently. It's only, it's only possible when we see Jesus differently. And so here's the perspective that we're coming at this morning, okay? It's this. It's that the Bible speaks towards and informs the way in which we understand the condition of our world and the condition of our person. In order for us Right to, to buy in with this, to get on board with this, we need to have our understanding and perception of the person of Jesus transformed. Now he's working on this right through the signs that we've observed in the gospel of John. We spent a lot of time last week talking about his sovereignty, and I don't think that that is just coincidence. We said last week, as we, as we looked towards outside resources that serve to speak truth and inform our understanding, that, that the sovereignty of God is the bedrock by which we understand everything else. We come back around to this reality this morning. We are in need of seeing Jesus differently as he presents himself in the word. 
our understanding, our perception, our framework of who Jesus is shaped first and foremost by the word of the Lord. This is what we're leaning into this morning. God purposes suffering to display his glory. That is difficult. Like you may be hearing that and you go, wow, this is going to be interesting, (laughs) right? Like this is going to be really challenging the way that we go about approaching this this morning. But I think that John 9 goes a long way in helping us to, to land in this place. A few points that I want us to, to unpack. We're going to begin with number one, because that's always a great place to start, right? Point one, a new framework. Jesus exposes, as we come into John chapter 9, a faulty framework while encouraging us towards the adoption of a new. Look with me at verse 1. As he passed by, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Uh, Rabbi, who sinned? Uh, this man or his parents that he was born blind. Let's survey the landscape and just state a few obvious observations from the text. A man... Blind since birth is identified by Jesus. He's identified by Jesus as he continues to perform these amazing signs that expose both the shape of our world as well as the work of Jesus leading us to the establishing of his kingdom, a kingdom absent from all effects of the fall. In this particular case, we find a man who physically perfectly displays our condition spiritually. A man blind since birth who has no eyes to see. In this passage, Jesus identifies himself as as light. This is not a a, a new uh, descriptor for Jesus as we consider his gospel ministry as a whole, as we consider the, the full composition of the gospels. He is identified there in the very beginning, John chapter 1, as, as the light, right, that enters into the world. We find a man in John 9 who has no eyes to see and no eyes to recognize the light of life. He's unable to see God, himself, and the world around him clearly. Now, what is this? This is a condition, right? It's a condition that serves to challenge the current framework of the disciples, who, verse 3, wrongly assume that there is a cause and effect relationship between this man's condition and his specific suffering. What is their question? Their question is as follows. What caused this man's blindness? There's no question that it was sin, but whose sin was it? Was it his own sin or was it the sin of his parents? Again, Jesus is challenging a framework held by the disciples. But what does this mean? We need to first understand what we're talking about when we talk about framework. And so what is framework? Some of you are familiar with this type of language. For other of you, this may be new and that's totally okay. Hang with me for a second. Here is what framework is. Okay, Framework is the way in which we see the world. 
Right? It's the way that we, we understand our place in it. It's the way that we, that we see those around us, the way that we interpret life events and circumstances and situations that we experience. All of us have a framework. Or we all have a framework by which we see the world. And here's the thing. Framework isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right? Our frameworks are informed by things like where we live. Right? Where we're from. The way that we see the world, given our geographical context, is very different than the way that individuals on the other side of this country see the world. Why? Well, because we live in different places. We think about the world differently. Our frameworks are shaped by where we're from. Our frameworks are shaped by who our family is. Personal experience. Right? Our frameworks are shaped by uh, where we went to church or if we went to church. Our frameworks are shaped by our faith. Our frameworks are shaped by our, our education, right? If we went to school or didn't go to school or what level of school we completed, all of these things tend to shape and inform framework. And as we said in the beginning, framework is not necessarily a bad thing. However, one thing that we we routinely revisit is this idea that when our framework wears the crown over the text, it does become a bad thing. Or when we find our framework, the way in which we see the world, the way in which we see ourselves, the way in which we see others, the way in which we, we see God coming into conflict with the word, the desire is that we would always take a back seat. Right, that our frameworks would submit themselves to the authority of God's word. Well, we might feel this way, but what does God's word have to say about this? These are the questions that we are asking. This is, this is what it looks like to consider framework. Here we are witnessing a faulty framework of disability and suffering held by the disciples. This perception right, of why this is a thing. Why is this man blind? Who sinned? Was it he or was it his parents? This is a framework issue. And what we find is Jesus leaning in and challenging this framework that is held by the disciples. It's a framework that Jesus intends to correct. For each one of us in this room, we understand that, that Jesus is desiring to bring the way in which we see him, the way in which we see the world, the way in which we see one another, the way in which we see ourselves into submission to his word. What is it that drives the bus? Right? What is it that shapes and, and informs and speaks? Well, it's God's word. Jesus intends to correct this faulty framework within the disciples. And what we find is we come into this place each week. And as we gather together as God's people or around tables throughout our community, studying his word, as you find yourself at home at the kitchen table, right? Sipping lattes and reading the word is that God desires to correct our faulty framework and to replace it with one that is most informed by, by his word and his work and his desire. 
the immediate challenge facing you and I is an understanding of a framework and a deep consideration of how the word demands adoption as we submit our own thoughts to the perspective of God's. That's our desire. Okay, here's what we want to come together around this morning. Lord, um, help us to submit um, submit our, our understanding and our perception of the world and others and ourselves to your perspective. May your perspective drive the bus. May it fly the plane. Insert whatever analogy that helps you to best wrap your mind around what we're trying to drive home here. Submitting our thoughts to the perspective of God. We consider brokenness in the world around us. We consider disability. We consider death. We see ourselves and and the world as they are in need of redemption. We are, are routinely reminded that we live in a broken place. At the same time, we're encouraged because we see ourselves in the world as they are in need of redemption, as well as how they can and will be rescued, right? Being made new through who? Well, through Christ, right? It's our, it's our king who ultimately makes us new. It's our king who ultimately makes everything around us new. Think about the top three things that you observe in yourself and the world that drive you crazy because you desire to see them made better. God makes it clear in his word that he is in process of, of remaking, of establishing this new and better kingdom under the authority of a, of a better king, King Jesus. As we adopt this perspective, we begin to ask questions like, where is God in the midst of this? As opposed to questions like, who is to blame for this? Does that make sense? Or we begin to, to, to not see the world and ask so much, man, who is to blame for this? But we begin to ask questions like, where is God in all this? Understanding, understanding that, that we are bringing ourselves under the authority of his word, submitting ourselves to his framework, and that he is driving us towards, point two, a new purpose. A new purpose. Not only do we see a, a new framework as Jesus exposes faulty framework in the disciples, as we feel even now this exposure of faulty framework perhaps that we possess, but we see this new purpose. Jesus purposes the blind man's condition. Look with me at verse 3. John writes, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road, right? Here's where your framework is most faulty. Here is your perception and here is your understanding. This is not the way that I see things. This is not the way that I, that I work. Instead, Jesus says, it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. Again, let's go back to our question in the beginning. Why is the world so filled with trouble? Well, it's certainly not because God is not in control. 
All right, maybe that's a, a, an issue or an idea that you're, that you're wrestling with. I would encourage you to catch it up with myself or one of our leaders to talk more about what that means. But we have spent countless weeks establishing this case for the sovereignty of Jesus, understanding his power, understanding his authority, understanding the way in which he works. It's not that God is not in control, that the world is filled with trouble. Right, It's not because God is mean or because God is unjust. In fact, he is perfectly kind and and perfectly just. He defines these things for us without, without looking to God to define for us understanding of kindness and justice. We have a skewed perspective. We can't truly know what that means. We can't truly know what that looks like unless we look to God in order to understand it. Instead, it's so followers of Jesus can experience this truth. Let me revisit the question. Let's state this, right? Why is the world so filled with trouble? Why is the world filled with death? Why is there such thing as as hardship and trouble and disability and sadness? It's all so that followers of Jesus can experience this truth. That Christ is more satisfying. That Christ is more precious. Right? That Christ is more valuable, more beautiful, and more comforting than all the treasures of this world inside us and, and outside of us. We come along and we see illustration and other New Testament texts that support this idea. We look to the writing of Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 in which he writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Well, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing him, knowing his value, understanding his beauty. Man, it is is more important. It It is more valuable. It is to be more sought after. Paul continues on. For his sake, he writes, I have suffered the loss of all things. And here's the deal. And I count them, Paul writes, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Why is the world filled with trouble? So that we might understand, as does Paul, that Christ is most satisfying. Right, that Christ is, is most precious, that Christ is most valuable, that Christ is most beautiful, that Christ is most comforting. Do we see trouble that way? Do we see hardship that way? Do we see suffering and, and, and disability, and pain, loss, death that way? That these things are are avenues in light of what we see here in John chapter 9, by which Jesus leads us into this deeper understanding and comprehension of his worth, of who he is, of this idea, this reality, this perspective that in Christ we find everything that ultimately satisfies our deepest desires, Maybe you're here this morning and you go, man, I've got a list of desires as long as my leg, (laughs) right? Like fat stacks and a bank account somewhere, right? 
like a steady, awesome nine to five. Perfect marriage, perfect relationships, perfect friendships. The world in which we live just does not function this way, does it? We're surrounded by trouble. And I think that we see here in John chapter 9 this encouragement from Jesus to adopt this perspective. That, that perfection in all of these areas, that the ideal being understood and realized in all of these areas will indeed leave us wanting. Because there is no substance to them ultimately, at least not outside of Christ. Now, obviously, we're not standing here. I am not standing here and saying there is no substance to marriage. Pay no attention, right? No, that would be insane. What I am saying is this, right? That that Christ provides us with this proper perspective on marriage, on our friendships, on our relationships, on work. I was able to go over to a cross where Courtney, my wife, works on Friday and talk about a gospel perspective of work. We see work as drudgery, right? We see work as difficult, working for the weekend. But the gospel transforms this perspective, right? The gospel transforms purpose. The gospel provides a new framework. All of this, all of these ideals outside of Christ are to be cast aside. We embrace suffering and the loss of all things, counting them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ. What are you holding to? What are you, what are you looking to? What are you trusting in this morning that is not him, that is leaving you lacking? Hardship drives us towards this realization. Paul is not alone in his articulation of this idea. In fact, we find, we find the next in the book that I believe as of right now, spoiler alert, we're going to be looking at next after we finish this series through the seven signs of Jesus. That is Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, having been confronted with this reality that the Lord is um, preparing hardship for his people, right, in order to, in order to bring them back around in order to discipline them and, and, to, and to bring them back into this joy of the Lord. Habakkuk writes this. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. Now let's step back and go, this is a bit of language that we're not all too you know, familiar with. I don't know if anybody's surveying the, you know, the olive tree in the backyard, right? And, and praying for the Lord's gracious provision, right? Um, but I think that we get the idea. I think that we get what Habakkuk's saying here, right? Things are difficult. Things are, are challenging. The flock being cut off from the fold. No herd in the stalls. Great hardship. Great difficulty. How does Habakkuk respond? He says this in verse 18 of chapter 3. Yet, what a great word, <laughs> yet, despite all of these things, yet I will, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This world is not absurd and meaningless but it's an outward display of the human heart. 
the human heart under siege by surprise, our sovereign king. In this world, this broken world, we find the ideal stage for God's greatest display of love. You, God, are the God who knows and loves me. Right, the, the God of David, the rock of ages, you know me better than I know myself. You don't sit passively by. We observe this in verse 1 of John chapter 9. He observes the blind man. He sees the blind man. You're not ignorant or powerless over my struggle, but you purpose it all. For what? To display your glory. You purpose it all to display your glory. This passage challenges the way that we see death and and disability specifically as we consider the context of chapter 9. Jesus is addressing a man whose condition is as it is, not because of sinful decisions that he has made. We've established this point. It's not the consequences of, of personal poor decisions, but so that the work of God could be displayed. A man who's been blind since birth. For what purpose? So that the work of God might be displayed. So that the sufficiency of Christ might be understood. John Knight, in an article written in 2010 explores the topic of God's sovereignty over human disability. That's his authority. That's his power, right, over human disability. And in this particular article, he considers the words of Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. And he does so from the perspective that God exercises power over disability in order to, as we see here in John 9, make his works known. He provides a little bit of commentary, and he does so from a most unique perspective. Hang with me as we read through this together. He writes, beginning in verse 13 of Psalm 139, For you, God, formed my inward parts. And he adds this statement. For God, you formed my inner parts with Down syndrome. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Without eyes. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made with cognitive challenges. Wonderful are your works in creating me without limbs. My soul knows it very well, though my ears will never hear a sound. My frame was not hidden from you as you made me with Apert syndrome. When I was being made in secret with autism, your eyes saw my unformed substance with spina bifida. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed from me with cerebral palsy, when as yet there was none of them. Holy cow. Now, what makes John's writing so interesting? What makes John's writing so encouraging 
And so beautiful is that he writes as one familiar with the challenges that come along with disability. He and his wife, Diane, have four children. Hannah, Daniel, Johnny, and Paul. Paul lives with disabilities, including blindness, autism, cognitive impairments, and a seizure disorder. John's perspective ought to be our perspective. One shaped not only by Psalm 139, but John 9, that God knows us. Right? That he, that he knows us. Not only that, but he's powerful and he's purposeful, even in the things that are so incredibly difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Point three, Christ's kind provision. Jesus provides, Jesus displays the work of God through the disability of the John 9 man. And he does so by healing him. Look with me at verse five. Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back miraculously seeing. In this life, let's be clear. Right there, there are times in which God physically heals. We've seen this a number of times through the seven signs of Jesus here in John. But let us also be clear that we cannot miss their purpose. Again, John Bloom, contributor to Desiring God, writes the following. When God gives a gift of healing, it is always intended to what? To glorify Christ and to point us to believe in his gospel. Healing is meant to bear witness to the proclaimed gospel. It is a visible manifestation that the kingdom of God is taking ground from the kingdom of Satan. How beautiful is that? It's a herald of God's coming final triumph when we pray for healing. It is one way that we pray. God, your kingdom come. God heals. And when he does, he does so as a, as a testimony to the, to the power of Christ, and the sufficiency of the gospel and this work of establishing his kingdom here that is being mirrored and displayed through this, this even temporary act of physical, emotional, spiritual wellness. God heals. We see that. We've observed it. We see it here in John chapter 9. But at the same time, we must acknowledge that there are times that he doesn't. And so what do we do with that? That's the question that we ask, isn't it? It's in times like these that we look to and find such hope and encouragement from such New Testament illustrations and examples like Paul, who experienced some type of thorn in the flesh and repeatedly prayed and asked the Lord to to heal him, to make him well. 
Interestingly enough, what is the response of the Lord? It's this, right? It's that my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. And so regardless of ailment, regardless of struggle, regardless of difficulty, there is this, there is this encouragement, right? That is, being, that is being drawn out as we are driven to understand the sufficiency of Jesus to heal us, making us well, mirroring his kingdom, while at the same time, when he does not, providing for us all of the grace that we would require, to continue on faithful and steadfast. We observe Christ's kind provision in the John 9 man, but oh, how we observe Christ's kind provision by way of his grace when there is not physical healing. Christ's kind provision, Jesus provides. Point four, we're motoring right through. We're drawing to an end here. Hang with me. Christ's proclamation. I want us to consider this from the passage as a whole. The proclamation of Jesus is that he writes a world that has fallen in an act resembling creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Think about the, the, the things in which we observe taking place from the one who speaks light In the beginning, there is, in this passage, John chapter 9, sight. The pronouncement of Christ is, again, this. I am God. I am divine. I am sovereign. And I am distinct in that I provide new eyes. He not only heals physically, but spiritually. He provides us with this new perspective, this new framework, this new understanding and comprehension of who he is. That grows us in godliness. Mirroring him to the world. Signs that bring about and encourage sight. Christ's proclamation. Jesus proclaims that through this passage. Fast forward now. Point five. The proclamation of the healed. We observe a proclamation from Christ here in John 9, but he's not the only one proclaiming. We see a proclamation from the previously blind man of John chapter 9. I want us to read through this last portion of the text together. And there's really nothing that needs to be said in light of it. It speaks for itself. Look with me, John chapter 9 verse 8. So the man has been healed. He went away. He washed his eyes, right? Just as Jesus had told him to. And now he can see. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, No, right? Like, I am the man. Verse 10. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? Right? What's going on here? Something is amiss. Something is not as it previously was. Verse 11, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and he anointed my eyes and said, go to Shalom and wash. So I went and and washed and I received my sight. Verse 13, they brought the Pharisees, uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. We know that that's really going to like tick a lot of people off. Verse 15. 
So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and washed and I see, (laughs) right? Like really simple. We've talked about this before, right? Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But the other said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? Why, how then does he now see? And his parents answered, we don't know what's going on here, right? We do know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we have no idea, nor do we know who opened his eyes, but go and ask him, right? He's of age. He can speak for himself, which is exactly what we see observing going on here. The proclamation of the healed, verse 24. So for the second time, they call the man uh, who had been healed and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, hey, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already. This is so incredible. Like, this is just so incredible. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. No kidding. No kidding, right? The man opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Verse 32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man. Now he's asking him if he believes in, in him, right? Like, do you believe in me? Jesus is not going to identify himself as the son of man. Do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir? I, that I may believe in him. I'm super interested in believing him, but, but like where? Like who and, and where? To which Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he responded by worshiping him. What a scene. What an incredibly beautiful, incredibly frustrating, incredibly humorous scene. It's just a lot of emotions going on as we're reading through this, isn't it? But one thing is made, is made clear. The, the man responds to the conclusion by worshiping Jesus. When we understand that we have been born into a broken and fallen world, blind and in need of being provided sight, 
and that Jesus accomplishes this by his grace, through his spirit, the only right response is worship. Does that make sense? The only right, the only appropriate response is worship. It's not, why in the world have I been blind for so long? (laughs) Like in this man's position, like I've been physically blind since I was born. What a tough draw. That's not the perspective. That's not the position. Instead, there is just this this worship directed toward Jesus, the one who provides sight to the blind. John 9, God purposes suffering and he does so to display his glory. How does that challenge the way in which we, we see the world around us? How does this this recognition of the sufficiency and kindness, grace of Christ drive us into a position of worship? We're about to worship, okay? Like you're about to have opportunity to like actually like move forward, to move out of your seats and to move forward and to respond with your voice. What we see here in light of John chapter nine is is that the one in whom we worship is worthy because he gives us sight. And he provides us sufficient grace and he heals us. John challenges his readers to see hardship and and brokenness and disability differently. Understanding that this is only possible as we understand Jesus differently. What does that look like for you? What hardship are you experiencing? Have you experienced? How does... The gospel transformed the way in which we understand this manifestation in our life. This week is a, is a somewhat challenging passage because um, we are familiar with this topic so intimately. Some of us most recently. And so what does it look like then to, to, to move forward in light and to, and to cast ourselves upon the sufficient grace of Jesus? To find rest for our souls and to find confidence in his purposes to the point that we desire the elevation and the exaltation of Jesus at all costs. What does that look like? That's challenging. Guess what? It gets more challenging next week. Because next week we see the extent to which Jesus goes to make this realization something that you and I are able to understand and comprehend through the death of Lazarus. What a joy. What a joy. Let us gaze as we conclude our time upon our our crucified and resurrected king for the forgiveness of our sins. We have sight. May we appreciate him. May we glory in him. May we enjoy him. And may we worship him. As these guys come forward to lead us in this last song in just a moment, I want to pray um, and I want to prepare you, right? Prepare us. I want to ask the Lord to do this work as we come to the table and we remember the cross and the resurrection. We need this. We need this. So let's pray together. Father, thank you.